Well, good morning. The title says it all. I don't even have to give an introduction. What keeps you up at night? So I'm going to jump right in. If you've missed any of the two weeks that we've been in this series, go to the website. You can watch and listen. But this summer, we asked you to vote. We had a Facebook poll and we said, hey, let us know what keeps you up at night. And so you went ahead and answered that question. And there was one answer more than any other that kind of rung out. It had double the votes of all the other things. And it's what we're going to talk about today. And here's what it is. You worry about your kids. Doesn't matter if they're in the house or they're grown up, you worry about your kids. And it comes across or it comes in a question like this. Are they going to be okay? Or will we get through this? Will they get through this? And these fears start, if you're like me, as soon as you get home from the hospital. Starts that early. The hospital is kind of a a fake environment because everybody takes care of everything for you, right? Other than them waking you up at night, everything's taken care of. And people come and they bear gifts to you. Our kids were born in the mid-90s, and so the hospital food was not good at all. So I asked that the gifts they bring would be stuff like char grill, French fries, you know. Um, I love a New York pie, 18-inch pizza. So they were bringing it. Yeah, all right. (laughs) So my brother and his wife were bringing in the pizza. Uh, But then comes that moment when it's time to go home. And you start to think about what that might mean. And so I asked my wife, because... We had a picture that kind of captured this moment. Kim sat in the wheelchair in the room. Take a look. I've got a picture of it. She's like, I think I can do this. That's our daughter, Elizabeth. But we went downstairs, and I remember trying to get Elizabeth in the car seat, and it took the longest time because you want to make sure that you're doing it correctly. And then we, this was at Wake Med where she was delivered. We lived off of Leesville Road, which is about, what, 14 miles? It should take about 20 minutes. It took an hour and a half for two reasons. The first being, I didn't want to go the speed limit. I wanted to keep it safe. So I went probably half the speed limit, which was, was illegal and more dangerous. But my mother-in-law was there with us in the hospital. So she took all of the balloons that said congratulations and she put them in her car And if you're a police officer, you know that that's not legal. So we turn off of 440 in Crabtree and the lights come on and we get pulled over because the balloons are blocking her view. Eventually, we get to our house. It was a rainy day. I remember it vividly. And my wife and I uh, got to the living room and we just collapsed on the floor. I actually have a picture of me. Look at the look. Don't, don't look at the beautiful hair, but look at my eyes. They're like panicked. We cried either before or after this or both. Uh, we sat on the living room floor and we cried and we said, do you think we can do this? Are we, are we going to know what to do? And then the kid, she grew, and we never felt like we were ready for the next thing that we were facing. 
And if you're a parent or you're a guardian of another, you know exactly what I'm talking about right now. That you worry for your kids even when they're out of the home. You worry about their health and their life. You worry about their safety. You worry about where they're going to be. What are they going to be? Are they going to pick the right classes? Are they going to get the grades? What are the relationships like? What are the ups and downs of that? Are they being bullied? What do you do if they are? And all of these things come to your mind. You wonder what heartaches, what failures are they going to experience? And it causes you to stay awake at night, even during the day, occupy you saying, will they be okay? Will they get through this? But there's an added burden that we also go through, and that is on us. We say, do we know what to do? Will I have enough, make enough to support them? How about my decisions or decisions that were made that I didn't have control over and perhaps the marriage isn't well? How is that going to affect our kids? And so you wonder, what's going to go on? And the kids grow, and a lot of times, so do our fears. Some of the things they're going through. Maybe you're worried about mental illness, and they're struggling with depression. Maybe it's a life or death health issue. You're worried about that. Maybe your child has run away from home, and what do you do with that? They're in rehab. What? And so that question of, is it going to be okay for them and for us? Will I get through it? Everybody's like staring at me like, yes, I have felt that. Rob, what do I do with it, right? That's, we're going to move into that. But before we do it, I'm going to ask that the ushers come down. They have Bibles. We're going to jump into a Bible story. And I want to make sure that you have God's word in your hand. If you don't have a Bible, this is a gift from you to the church, uh, from the church to you. Or uh, if you just need to uh, borrow it, please just take it and return it to the back on the way out. But yeah, as I, I'm running through this list, there's part of me that only intensifies that, that question, which I know that you're thinking about as well, is yes, I relate to some of those things. And so what do we do about it? Well, that's a very long list, right? And I only have, it says 15 minutes. I hope I have a little bit more than that. But um, it's a long list. But I will tell you that there are tools in this area, both um, within the church, with the uh, family environment, the middle school, the high school. There's resources to leverage, relationships to leverage. School systems have great tools there are area organizations that have tools that can help you navigate a lot of this. And if you don't know where they are, email me. I'll help you find those. But I've got a certain amount of time, and I want to give you one or two tools that are going to help you effectively kind of manage all the other ones. And if you're saying, well, I don't have kids, so I can zone out. No, come with me, because I believe that the tools we're going to talk about today apply to you as well. So we're going to be in Luke 8, but I would like for you to write down Mark 5 on your notes, 
as well as Matthew chapter 9. Mark gives a whole lot of detail as well, just like Luke. Matthew just gives a little bit, but that's, this same story is shared across the gospel accounts, Mark 5, Matthew 9, and we're going to be in Luke 8. So Jesus and his disciples, they're on the Sea of Galilee. They've been teaching. They've been healing. The crowds want to see what they've heard about. And so we see Jesus and the disciples along this small little fishing village. And here's the story. A man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come with him. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. Now it says Jairus is the synagogue leader, and so he's likely not only the Jewish pastor, he's probably the mayor of the town as well. He's also probably playing the role of sheriff. And then he wears the father hat as well. And we see in this story him doing something that men don't typically do. And that is he gets down on his knees and he's pleading with Jesus. This is a man who the community would come to him in that way. But all of a sudden, he's taking that posture, not for the community, but for his daughter, who is at the point of death. And he comes to Jesus. And like, for me as a father, my kids are grown, but I know what 12-year-olds should be doing, right? It's not worrying about life or death. Things like going to the state fair next week or watching a movie or playing games or music or sports. Those are the things that 12-year-olds should be doing. But this father is worried about the child's life. And he comes at the feet of Jesus. And I almost picture like a lifeline, one end of the rope that he's holding and he's giving the other part to Jesus and saying, I don't know what to do. I need your help. Not fancy prayers. He's talking to Jesus. No formality here in the prayer, and it's simply, help me. And often in a crisis, we see it in the Old Testament. What happens? People cry out. We see it here in the New Testament. But when you look at your life, it's often in times like this where you reach out and you just say, help we need to do what Jairus does, and that is bring your fears to Jesus. Because here's the truth. If we don't take our fears about our kids to Jesus, we will take out our fears on our kids. We can take it out on others, but it also, in our parenting, we can end up taking our fears out on our kids. We become that paranoid parent. Or another term is like a helicopter parent, where you spend all of your time trying to control their world because you see all that could go on wrong in the world, and you project that on them. And therefore, you're like, how can I manage this situation? And you don't say manipulate, we don't say manipulate, but you're hovering over them. And what happens with that? is we suffocate our kids. We rob them of the gift of trying to maneuver this world to one day be independent. 
I'm not talking life or death situations. We need to step in, act, and protect, right? I think you know what I mean here is that we, we can end up trying to manage all their world, and a lot of times they push us away. And so the collateral of having that relationship is not there. Maybe you're not the helicopter parent, but there's the, another one called the permissive parent. That parent is just more interested in, I want to be their friend. But at the expense of, the, we don't think this, but I want them to be my friend, therefore I lift the rules, I, don't, I let them experiment, but that's not helping them out at all. Because all we're doing is setting them up for failure. If my kids can't learn in a safe environment how to obey, there is no way in the real world where it's not as safe where they're going to be able to learn that. So I would rather have them learn how to obey in a safe environment. So a permissive parent kind of robs that from them as well. So what are we to be? We need to be prayerful parents. We need to be able to, yes, do everything we can. This part of you is like, okay, pray, then what? Uh, right, we need to do all that we can do. Take them to the doctor, listen, give them advice, look at their relationships, put up some boundaries. But at the end of the day, we need to, like Jairus did, say, Lord, I can't do all this. I need your help to guide us through it. We wouldn't be, Jairus wasn't the first to come to Jesus, parent, to come to Jesus, nor will we be the first. There's a Canaanite mother who came because her daughter was being afflicted by evil spirits, came and knelt at Jesus' feet. A father whose son was experiencing seizures came to Jesus. And I have found, I, my kids are grown up, but son's a sophomore in college. My daughter just took her first job out of college. I pray more now than I did, and this, it's sad to say, like, I pray more now probably because she's outside of my control, right? And so I worry about her health when they're sick away from home. What am I doing? I'm praying. I'm, I'm thinking about my son and what kinds of classes and choices he's going to take. I'm not there. I pray. My daughter, just listening to the ups and downs of your first job, all of you know this and kind of see how she's feeling with that. And I'm not there. What do I do? I pray. I can't protect them from everything. My wife, Kim, can. <laughs> no. But no, she's there praying with me. Um, and we're taking our fears and our worries to Jesus. Jairus fell at Jesus' feet, told him the situation, and then we read, as Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds. And if you're in Luke and you've got your Bible before you, then you see this major interruption. Right here in the story, there is another person, a woman who needs help from Jesus and comes to him and I cannot think what the father's thinking at this point because Jesus entertains that woman and helps her. But you're, you're like the father, what's he thinking? Jesus takes care 
of the woman. Then we read, while he was still speaking to her, a messenger arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. He told him, your daughter's dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. I don't know if we can feel the weight of that moment. The father watching Jesus entertain this other woman. I don't think there's anything worse than a parent losing their child. But it might be a parent losing their child and not being there with the child. To be able to say, I love you, to hold their hand, to be there with your spouse. What was Jairus thinking? Everything swirling around. And in that moment, we read, Jesus heard what had happened, and he said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just have faith, and she will be healed. I want us to lay two statements down. Your daughter's dead. Just have faith. Tragedy trust, horror, hope, fear, faith. Who's Jairus going to listen to? Who am I going to listen to in that same tension of of parenting moments? Jairus chooses faith and listens to Jesus. And remember Jairus' original question, he asked Jesus, yes, for help, But Jesus could have helped right there, right? Like in that moment, your daughter's healed. But Jairus says, come to my home. He wanted Jesus in the house, under the roof, in the bedroom, there to take care of his daughter. Yes, we are to bring our fears to Jesus and pray, and we should. But we also must bring Jesus into the home. What's that mean? It means that Jesus should not be a stranger in our houses, not just during a crisis because it's going to be in the other moments that are going to allow our relationship with him to be able to flourish. What's it look like? It means modeling our faith, that I as a father... And Kim, as a mother, we are there. It's just normal to see dad reading his Bible, not because he's a pastor, but because he knows God is the one that's leading him in life, reading, praying. And I will say all of you are here, which is the best thing to be able to do, that your family comes to local worship, to worship God and to learn. I will add, fathers, if you're here, thank you. Moms are always have encouraged the faith in the family, but Donnie shared a story with us this week of a study that showed if a father comes and makes church a regular part of their life, I want to get the numbers right, two-thirds to three-quarters of their children will become churchgoers and live a life of faith. Two-thirds to three-quarters if the father is engaged in faith. And so we're to model that. Let's engage with our children. We have to, it requires us leaning in, listening to what 
may seem mundane kind of conversation, but it's in those moments that we're going to get those connect points that we can then say, I'm going through that in my work situation. You don't have to give all the details, but you're going, I understand the stress of a, a relationship. Here's what it's going, but it's forcing me. Here's what God's speaking to me with. And then the child, but how do I do that? And you can talk about that. It's why we do in our other environments, in the family, in middle school, in high school, we resource parents to partner with us to help your child live a life of faith where they're at. So I hope that you're leveraging those resources and getting involved there because it's going to be the opportunity for you to model that. Your trust and obedience is in God is setting the stage for your kids, my kids, to trust and obey. When they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, James, and the little girl's father and mother. The house was filled with people weeping and wailing, but he said, stop the weeping. She isn't dead. She's only asleep. But the crowd laughed at him because they all knew she had died. I want to Stop here for a second. It says the house was filled. I want to kind of segue from last week where we were talking about the importance of relationships, about moving from rows to circles where you're in relationship with others. Yes, I bet it was all their family was in that house, but I guarantee you that they had friends from the community that were there as well, and those friends were praying days in advance. And I say that for you and I, we need to have relationships, be in circles to have people who are going to pray for us the same things that we are praying for our kids. We need to have those around us doing that same thing. And then Jesus took her by the hand and said in a loud voice, my child, get up. And at that moment, her life returned and she immediately stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat, which always baffles me, right? I was working with John McLaurin, site pastor from Crossroads, as we were preparing. He's like, yeah, you always have a little food after a nap. Um, but her parents were overwhelmed, but Jesus insisted that they not tell anyone what had happened. I want to be honest with you here. I struggle with the ending because it's exactly the way I wanted it to turn out. Right? This is what we want. Does Jesus still do this thing? Absolutely. I've seen people have a terminal diagnosis, and I've seen them go on to live a full and a vibrant life. He still does it. But I also know that sometimes the healing doesn't happen on this side of heaven. My, I prayed. I prayed this. My sister died, and I've shared this before, died 38 colon cancer with kids. I said, Lord... I have faith that you can heal her. Please heal her. He didn't. Then. But here's what I know is true. God is good. Whether we experience physical healing here and now or eternally as a Christ follower with him forever, I can attest in my own life he is faithful he is good, I can trust him, and he helped me maneuver losing somebody. I know personally, 
and I have spoken to many of you, and I have seen it in your own lives, where he has taken care of you. I want you to meet the Green family who attend this location, North Raleigh location. And Nicole Humphrey, our family director, sat down with them this week to talk about this very thing and how they know that to be true as well. Check out the screens. What kept us up at night were small things. You know, how our children are going to fit in at school. Um, how are they going to play sports? Where are they going to rank? You know, are they going to be, you know, the jock or the nerd? Little things are huge and that person's eyes just depends on where you're at. So for us, we started realizing that the little things don't matter nearly as much as something huge. So when he went and had the blood work, they called back probably within 20 minutes and they told us um, to go get Zach from school and take him straight to the hospital, that there would be a doctor waiting. And um, I knew um, right then that something was wrong because it was a mom that called me, our doctor, and said, she said, I'm sorry. And I just knew when she said I was sorry that there was something bad. So when we got into the hospital, we waited for a little while and the oncologist came in and told both of us that he had leukemia. I don't think you could really do anything but cry. I mean, that's literally all you could do. I mean, you had people calling and wondering what was going on. You, you couldn't even talk to him on the phone. And we kept saying, why? Why us? And why Zach? Why is this happening? You know, I think that was the hardest thing. We just didn't understand why this perfect little boy with such a loving heart. Why, why was he, why did God pick him? And that was hard for us because our relationship with God was just such on the surface. We didn't really know where to go from there. One of my good friends um, was leaving and she said, um, she said, you know, lean on his word. It was the first time that I was given permission to have a true conversation with him, and um, and that I did. I think every night for those first three months, when I would go put Zach to bed, I would get in, then go in the bathroom, and I would I would yell, and I would beg, and I would just say, please take this. You know, the hard part was wondering why God was allowing him to go through so much pain. But I think ultimately, when um, Zach finally started feeling good, I said, Zach. Where do you get your strength from? And without even thinking about it, he pointed up to the sky. A six-year-old telling me that his faith was in God. And I thought, why is it mine? We saw his faith and we wanted to have that peace because he had a peace in him that just was beyond explanation and we wanted to have that relationship with him we wanted to continue to get to know him and to grow together in our marriage and to you know make that example for our children just set that example for them to, to know that you're, you're gonna have tough times and we know that now and I just remember we were getting in the car and I'm thinking all this in my head and um, Zach gets in the car and he said you know what mama 
He goes, I know why God allowed me to get cancer. And I'm like, okay, well, why? Because one day I'm gonna come back to this hospital and I'm gonna paint with the kids and I'm gonna let them know that I beat cancer and they can too. And I thought, even though his battle was over, our story wasn't over and that we've had the opportunity to share it and touch people's lives and maybe help people who are going through a similar situation and point them towards God and in the same way that we had people in our lives do that for us. That is a powerful story. It's a story that is still in progress. But Zach's faith inspired his parents to bring their fears to Jesus and experience the peace that only he could bring. Some of us are between the prayer and the answer, and we wonder, is it going to be okay? And I want you to know that God understands he cares. He understands parents because he is a parent. Psalm 127 verse 3 says, children are a gift from God. I love how Max Lucado captures this. Before they were ours, they were his. Even as they are ours, they are still his. We need to do all that we can with the wisdom God's given us and all the options that are around us, but we need to bring our fears and be that prayerful parent in the end. Not with closed hands, but with open hands that releases the children, their, your children, to the one who gave them to you. And that's Jesus. He understands the tension that you may be feeling, the horror versus hope, fear versus faith, because he felt it himself. There is no feeling, no circumstance that he hasn't gone through that we are experiencing. Take a look in the garden. He did not want to go ahead with what was before him. That wasn't okay. But yet, what did he do? He took his fears to God the Father and said, not my will, but your will be done. The best gift that you and I can give to our children is to model a life that takes our fears to Jesus Christ and allows him to just work in that and we be obedient. As I said, I can't be everywhere, but ultimately I want my children, and they do, to know him and to have a relationship with Jesus because he's gonna be everywhere that they are. And when they experience rejection, the peace of a parent, to know that Jesus who experienced rejection and relationships, that he will be right there with him or her walking through what that feels like. That when our children go through uh, like health situations like Zach, life or death, that Jesus understands what that looks like because he faced it himself and he can guide your child and you through all that. 
with their decisions. Imagine the peace knowing that they can go to the one that will help them make wise decisions. Will they mess up? Yes, they will. But to know if they have a relationship, they can lean into the one who will offer forgiveness, grace, and mercy. There is nothing more than we could want for a parent than to have a relationship with Jesus because he's going to be the one that will help them through all of it. We don't, the, the one thing we have control over is what we can model for them. And as you follow Jesus, he is going to make you a better parent. And he will give you the wisdom, the truth, the peace, the patience, the perseverance to carry out whatever is before you. And thank God. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you that uh, you are a parent yourself and you can lead us through all that life brings And though in this message we talked about the gift of a child, Father, you have given us so many gifts and all the way down to our breath. And we just release that to you and we pray that you just lead us in a life that helps us be good stewards of all that you've given and that the blessing of that be the fruit of freedom and patience and joy and self-control, all of those things which we desire for our children. And it's in your son's name I pray, amen.